Hello, my name is Paul Rogney, and I'm the host of the Drumming News Network. In recent years, handcrafted symbols seem to be a growing market. Rob Cook of Rebeats, author and creator of the Chicago Drum Show, believes that handcrafted symbols are the next frontier, much like the interest in custom drum manufacturing that took place in the early 1990s. May 20th and 21st of this year at the Chicago Drum Show, you will be able to meet and experience presentations on symbol making from each of these symbol craftsmen and on the 21st, a panel of all the craftsmen together. The series of interviews that I am doing are literally a discovery as it happens. I purposely did not do any, well, I hardly did any research on each of these symbol smiths ahead of time. I've custom built drums and my own drum hardware, but the idea of symbol crafting is something that seems part voodoo, craftsmanship, and passion. Three things that I have no interest in when it comes to actually creating a symbol. In each of these interviews, we get to see each of their own personalities. And like a true artist, even with similar approaches, their outcomes are completely different. On this episode, I speak with Matt Nolan of Matt Nolan Custom. Using hammers, anvils, and fire, he creates fine musical instruments, percussion instruments such as cymbals, gongs, tam-tams, triangles, and other items. He creates instruments for drummers, percussionists, composers, symphony orchestras, touring and recording artists, and art collectors from all over the world. He believes making instruments as much by hand as possible gives them the most character and range of expression. In this episode, I am including video of him as he is shaping a symbol, with him providing a step-by-step -step narrative of the symbol-making process. This will prove to be a very interesting episode, so let's get on with it. Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This is exciting to get to know you. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, good day so far. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I've been watching some of your videos, and like I said, with everybody I've been talking to, I don't do a lot of research, so I didn't, but you're the first to send video, so um, I thought what we could do in this one is have you talk over a little bit and describe what's going on in the videos that we have. Okay. And then um, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. First, I'd like to start with you, your history. So um, what initially got you into drumming and wanting to become a drummer? Okay, so we're going back a bit. Um, <laughs> I guess it like... Junior school and the first couple of years of high school, um, I was singing in like the school choirs. Um, that was about all the music I did, really. I wasn't particularly good at like piano keyboards or recorders like everyone had to play as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, or even reading music, wasn't particularly good at, you know, reading dots. Um, but we had such a fun time doing this, uh, the uh, sort of beginning of secondary school, high school there. Um, the music teacher had already had this history of writing these musicals, like, you know, big sort of console type musicals, um, 200 or so school kid choir, plus a band of about 30, mostly wind band, but then, you know, with electric guitar, electric bass, acoustic guitar, other things thrown in here and there. Um, the World Wildlife Fund had commissioned these um, as kind of environmental message musicals. So, We'd go and perform them, um, and then the music would be published, and other schools all around the world would go and perform them. And, and I guess the kids learn and absorb things, and they also put the message out to whoever goes, watches it. It was uh, kind of fun, kind of informative. Uh, the quality was pretty high. You know, we were absolutely taskmastered for everything to be perfect and precise, super rehearsed, 
Uh, the choir was like organized in height order. So the rows of people were perfectly neat and clean and all up and down. <laughs> really? It was like, you know, <laughs> the full works. OCD. Um, <laughs> re rehearsed standing up and sitting down in, uh, in uh, unison, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. You know, rehearsals throughout the summer break, everything. Um, and it was great fun. Um, and I realized as I was getting sort of 14 ish, you know, voice is starting to break in that funny point where sometimes you're up here and sometimes you're down here. And like, it's, it's not a great time to be trying to sing, right? You know, maybe a bit later, you'll be able to sing a baritone or tenor or whatever. But right in that point, it's like, okay. But the musical we'd done as I sort of joined that school was all about um, Africa and. Not so much the wildlife, but more the sort of social stuff of, uh, you know, more tribal people coming into the cities and ending up stuck in shanty towns and all the economic problems and crime and all, all this kind of stuff. Um, but of course, being African-based, there was lots of percussion in in the band, in the music. Uh, and I guess I'd been kind of standing behind them. My position in the choir was more or less behind the band and the back of the band where all the percussionists were. So, you know, they're playing like real marimbas and uh, African marimbas, sorry, real marimbas, Western marimbas and African marimbas, uh, orchestral bass drums, drum set, all sorts of toms and bongos and everything. I thought, well, maybe I could play the drums, you know, and these guys are going to be like graduating, leaving, going on to the, their next education. They're going to need more drummers. So, so I see two or three of my mates and I decided, okay, we're going to learn to play the drums. So uh music teacher taught us like after school, basically, like one one evening a week. Uh for a while, and you know, we sort of got integrated into the, the the sort of big band kind of thing they had, as well as the stuff for the musicals. Um and then I think maybe a little later, like the other kids, the older kids were teaching us as well. So we'd get like sort of two nights a week, one with the music teacher and one with uh one of the, you know, existing drummers. So we learned that way, we got involved um, and yeah, did lots of playing there. We played, you know, a couple of big concert halls in London, as well as like, you know, the one in our local town. Um, and we even got uh, invited to the US, actually, to play in the uh, Kennedy Center in Washington. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. DC um, with Sting, because he was big into like <laughs> environmental rainforest stuff right around that time. And the World Wildlife Fund said, hey, you know, can you come along? And so he kind of did the narrations. So there was like singing and music and songs and big choral pieces. Uh, and then in between every now and again, there'd be a bit of narration to set set the scene. Mm -hmm. So that was his role. He had like this armchair on the stage there and his you know, big list of notes. And he'd sort of read these narrations. I think he joined in on the last chorus for the encore or something as well. So he did a little bit of singing. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the you know, experience of a lifetime for someone who was probably what? 14, 15 years old, right. playing in front of like 5,000 people in a foreign country, um, you know, it going down in a storm. Um, and for once, we didn't have to pack up the gear because it was all rented and other guys took it away. Usually, <laughs> percussionists are always their last, packing everything up, um, you know, unloading, setting up, and all the reverse again. But this time, it's like, no, just go and have your after show little snacks. Oh, wow. <laughs> So Fantastic. I guess that, that's how it started. And then like a um, sixth form college, which is, I think, equivalent to your last couple of years of high school, I think, like 16 okay. to 18 years old. Um, 
I was like in the college dance band, which is like a swing band, big band kind of thing. Um, which again was a extracurricular thing. It was sort of, you know, at lunch times and then we'd do concerts uh various times of the year. Uh, I didn't study music formally. Okay. Um, but that's also when I joined my, you know, sort of popular rhythm combo, you know, rock band kind of things with guitarists and all that kind of thing. What kind of music were you playing as a, as a drummer when you're playing out with the, with your bands, like the rock bands? So those first ones were, um, I guess, fairly heavy alt rock kind of stuff. Um, older stuff, Rolling Stones, Deep Purple, uh, newer stuff like Marillion or uh, how what else do we play? Some originals. Mm -hmm. Um no, a mix. I mean, I think, what did we do? Oh, Metallica, I think. Oh, really? Okay, that's I think, cool. I think we'd, we'd learned, like, within about four days of it being released, uh, Unforgiven by Metallica, that song. Came okay. Out was it that one? No, no, sorry. Enter Sandman. Okay. <laughs> so first time I actually transcribed a drum path. Okay, what's he doing? All the fills and everything. So, yeah, that in that band. And then later on, more... Uh, I mean, not quite Frank Zappa, but sort of comedic music, slightly complicated music, you know, using humor as the excuse <laughs> to play okay. things a little, a little more over the top. Um, and, and then most recently in a, like a boogie-woogie band, actually, or hmm. a sort of piano blues, piano boogie, um, blending into a bit of jazz and uh, sort of bringing in, like, not quite klezmer, but like, Eastern European sort of scales and melodies and things, but in that sort of piano um, and harmonica, saxophone kind of mold, I guess. Because that was anything interesting, Banks, we didn't have a bass player, you know, it was kind of the pianist's left hand. Uh, okay. So I made a kit that was very sort of lightweight and light sounding, so it didn't sound sort of out of place without a big thumping electric bass or a big upright. Uh, I see made it from frame drums like Remo. Mm -hmm. Tunable frame drums. So okay. Originally, it was 22 by two inch single headed bass drum. Then I went down to an 18. They work better with like a, a double ply head. Oh, get really? a bit more thump. You just like put a mic on that, and the rest of it was acoustic, and it, it just yeah, worked, worked quite nicely. That's fantastic. So, how did you anchor that drum when you're when you're putting a pedal? Oh, it? I sort of there's there are foot pedal attachments for putting cowbells and tambourines and things on. And there are also bass drum rim clamps for cowbells. Mm -hmm. So you put those two together, and you can clamp a frame drum onto a pedal. But I think on the 22, I put some like reins on it to the yeah. heel of the foot plate, just so it wouldn't flap too much. But on the 18, you, you didn't really need that. It was it was fine. You could, so, you could lay into it, actually. It? Well, that's cool. I never would have thought of that. Um, what kind of drum set were you using when you're playing in the rock band? You know, like, what kind of drum set's your favorite drum set, and kind of what's your setup normally? Oh, right, okay. Um, well, that first set, or well, the first proper set I had was it was a premiere, I think premiere, as you say, over there. Uh, <laughs> Wait, how do you say proper? So I got to we got to learn your proper way of saying it. Premier, <laughs> premiere, premiere. Okay. Um, that was like a like a seventies elite, I think. Hmm. I bought off a colleague of my dad, work colleague of his at the time, 
but I think it had it had a pearl snare drum, a metal shell snare drum, uh, which was I don't know what the modern name of it is, but I think it's it's this the one that Stuart Copeland used. Mm. Uh, but that came with the drum kit, though. Really like the throw off on that. Mm. It just sort of comes away st- perpendicular to the drum. You can you can put it on with your leg while you're playing if you want to. So it's kind of helpful. Okay. And then with that, would you use a lot of accessories or larger setup, or would it be a smaller setup that you'd just kind of... Uh, uh, I mean, that was a five-piece. I, t- I was adding cymbals more than anything to it, you know. It kind of makes sense later in life. Yes. In retrospect. <laughs> uh, although I think early on I was making things out of, like, you know, the cardboard tubes that go in big rolls of carpet, like mm-hmm. trying to make octobands out of those. Um, didn't work too well. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I think I was trying to make a rototom as well. I'd seen rototoms and thought, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow my dad had like two big pulleys from like the back of washing machine drums. Mm-hmm. Um, probably 16 inch, I guess, diameter. And I thought, oh, maybe with two of those and, and a bit of threaded bar and something, I can make myself a rototom. Uh, that also didn't, didn't work. Like, oh, <laughs> it kind of worked, but with my, whatever it would have been, 14 year old. Um, uh, you know, the engineering skills. Uh, it wouldn't take the tension. You know, you'd start to tune the head up and then the tension bolts would start ripping out of what was going on. So, See, But it was, yeah. So I, then I think I kind of used them like spokes, not knowing that Terry Bursley would use them like that as, as spokes, just the, these rims for mm-hmm. bell-like sounds. So yeah, a few, few little extra bits on a, on a normal drum kit. But nothing, nothing outlandish. So that's fantastic about how you explore different ways of manufacturing um, just different drums out of interest. I used to do the same thing. And I had many mm-hmm. of the same failures you had. <laughs> I didn't do the rototom thing, but I used a lot of cardboard tubes in hopes to be able to make octavons and expand my drum set, and it failed horribly. Um, <laughs> but one thing, uh, so let's talk about the transition where you started kind of making your first cymbals. Or what was it the cymbal that you started with, or, some, or was it a different instrument you started manufacturing? Uh, it was symbols, yeah. Um, okay. I think I'd found this uh, web forum on the internet called Symbolholic, symbolholic.com, uh, that was around for a number of years. Um, no longer, no longer around. But uh, I think Facebook killed off a lot of those fora. You know, it's just yeah, different kinds of social media made interacting more more, more easy, I guess. But in a way, you lost a lot of the sort of archiving and searchability of threads and information and stuff. But it was a golden age, golden age of internet for <laughs> where nerds could find each other. Um, <laughs> talk nonsense about symbols. So I'd found that. And uh, uh, I think through that, found a couple of independent symbolsmiths. Uh, Steve Hoback um, was sort of the closest to me, I guess, in terms of being a British person from Wales. Um, although he, he wasn't living there. He was living in Iceland at the time. And I'd seen some of his pictures of his works. So I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, I hadn't never considered a symbol as a an artwork before, you know, just as a functional thing. And he sort of added this this other layer to it. Um and then there was, you know, learning about Roberto Spizzacchino in, in Italy, sort of, you know, the, the grand master in many, many people's eyes. Um, and a couple of others was a guy in the States, um, Mike Skieber, and a guy in Belgium called Johan van der Seper, Sieper, I think. And those two were posting on the forum quite a bit, sort of how they did things and explaining 
you know, what they thought about what makes a good symbol and how to do it. It's interesting they came from quite different angles. You know, Johan really wanted to start from like very clean, sort of, you know, Sabian or Zildjian, an existing symbol and re rework it um, because he didn't like the unpredictability of the Turkish and, you know, similar kind of, uh, mm, what's the word? Less technologically produced material, I guess. Okay. Um, whereas Mike was a lot more, no, you have to have that to get the sound. And so it, interesting. Learn, trying to learn little things from them. Um, and then I think there was a, there was a contest. Someone said, Hey, you know, we're all like symbol nerds. Why don't we have this, this wonderfully grand title, the international solo symbol competition. Now the idea with that was you would perform, you would compose and perform a piece of music play it on just one symbol. Um, it had to be no shorter than one minute, no longer than two. And um, it had to be recorded in one take. You know, you can overdub things. I mean, you can have several takes at it, but just one complete take presented as the, the result. Okay. Um, and they were uploaded. About 10 of us did it, I think. And um, then they were kind of anonymized and people listened to them, voted on them. And then, I think a drum shop donated a symbol or a voucher or something, and Johan donated a little symbol. And um, I'd, I'd already made this thing that I called a Simbat. It was like a, a symbol that had cracks and things in it that I bought on eBay for like five pounds, five dollars. It had like a paint splash on it and bad rivet holes and horrible cracks. And I cut all the cracks out and really like went overboard and made it into like the Batman logo that they shine in the sky. Cool. Out of a symbol. Um, which then made it really sort of expressive. Like each wing had its own little tone and the head had a tone and I sort of put a tail on it even though bats don't actually have a tail. Um, and sort of the wing scoops, you can kind of rattle sticks in them and have all these different playing possibilities. So I thought this is perfect mm -hmm. for my entry in this competition. And I think that's where it suddenly changed because then people were asking, oh, can you make me one of those? So then rather than me just tinkering with bent and broken bits of symbol and cutting shapes, um, I started doing it more, started buying sheet metal, started figuring out how do you actually reshape it with a hammer rather than just cutting shapes. Mm -hmm. uh, learned a little bit from Steve Hoback uh, with that because I think I got one to make a Simbat out of. And I cut it and it just flipped inside out. So I was like, oh, <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> so I'm... I understand I need to shape it and retention it with, with hammers, but I don't know how. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he was in Wales for a couple of months, which isn't far from Bath, where I am. And he was trying to sell a lot of his symbols on this symbolic forum with like, sometimes not even a photograph. He just have a description of them, no sound okay. files. And I thought, right, I've got this recording gear. I've got a camera. I'll come see you, photograph, record all your stuff. We can put it on the, the website you'll sell more of them that way. Mm -hmm. And in return, just show me a little bit of how, how you do it. Uh, so I guess, yeah, that's kind of how it, it started. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I got more and more obsessed with it. <laughs> well, that sounds so fantastic. What a way to, to get into it. One thing I'm really shocked about um, in comparison to like a lot of the drumsmiths or uh, boutique drum manufacturers, there's a lot of camaraderie within the symbol world. 
right now with uh, you guys crafting mm -hmm. symbols. I think that's fantastic. Can you speak a little bit about that family? What what brings you people together? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just take a right angle for a, a second. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there was another uh, forum, the Mike Dolberg Drum Forum. Mm, and, yes. Uh, a bunch of people from there got together every year at a, a drum show like that was in Birmingham. And we'd have a curry dinner afterwards, you know. A uh, bunch of people with just drums in common. And I think I was I stayed overnight with a friend of mine who lived nearby. He's a guitarist in a band I was in at university. And he came out with us to this curry. And his observation was guitarists are like cats, drummers are like dogs. You all get along together. You're not sort of preening or sort of uh, in competition. Mm -hmm. I thought that's a good observation. Uh, but I think maybe, yes, you're drawing a distinction between drum builders and cymbal smiths. I think maybe with cymbal smiths, there's even more of that goes on. Um, I'm not sure why. Maybe because <laughs> sort of traditionally it was all, there were only the big three or four companies. Um and so sort of as an individual, you're, you're very small and it, it kind of works better to be all helping each other as these individual people. And I guess we all come at it from a different angle as well. Everyone has their own style. Mm -hmm. So in a way, we're not in competition with each other. Um, you know, so what's good for one of us is good, good for all of us. More uh, awareness in the mm -hmm. general public, which is still pretty low of um, the fact there are independent symbolsmiths, one-man symbol companies. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we we all get along. We all sort of we we keep little secrets back, but we share a lot as well. <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta keep a little trade secret now. Yeah. yeah. Um. So uh, some 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 makers start with a Turkish uh, blank. Mm -hmm. Others start with an ingot. I noticed in some of your videos that we'll watch in a little bit, it looks like you're actually starting some of your symbols from, um, you know, just flat pieces of metal. Uh, Yes. How are you making your symbols? Right. So I use symbol blanks from various different places, um, chosen partly for uh, the different sounds they, they're capable of producing and also the different ways they can be worked. Um, so I do use some sheet metal stuff, so B8 and B15 discs that I get from Germany, and they are, yeah, they're flat, which mm -hmm. is very nice, and they're round. Um, they more or less have a smooth edge. Uh, Turkish blanks are more like a giant potato chip or a poppadom or something. They're wavy. They're rarely round. They've got sharp edges, usually. They've got jagged edges. Um, and if you don't use them fairly quickly, uh, you need to retemper them. They, they, they're always constantly getting harder with okay. age. So, yeah, sometimes I'm using... Chinese materials, sometimes Turkish, sometimes more recently I've been getting some Japanese stuff uh, from uh, Koide, the Japanese symbol company. Um, they have some B23 and uh, 23 with other things in, fancy mm -hmm. alloys that, uh, that have a very bright sound, which uh, I wanted for a certain orchestral sort of crash pairs of symbols. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, selecting different different types of blanks for different purposes, really. But I guess I started out with the flat stuff because that's all I could get. Okay. I guess I learned my trade to a certain extent with, with those types of materials. But then um, 
you know, then had to almost relearn, okay, what, what do you do with this wavy, really hard stuff that doesn't want to, uh, doesn't want to cooperate as, as much as the perfectly uniform, you know, stress-free um, sheet metal does. Now, so you had um, talked a little bit about um, the tempering of the symbol. You know, I, 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 when I've talked to some of these your craftsmen of these symbols, it's amazing on how many different types of techniques go into it. And um, I was just wondering at this moment, can we take a little bit of time to look at some of your videos? I'm going to try to do them, step them in order of, of how you're making the symbol. And right. then you could talk a little bit about um, what's going on within the video. So I'll just cue those up. Okay, sure. So can you step us through the process on this video right now? Okay, yeah. So in the big black thing to my left um, that you're kind of looking down on, Mm -hmm. There's a symbol blank in there at the moment that's uh, heating up, being held at a temperature. I'm about to take it out, throw it into the water tank that's behind me, cool it okay. down quickly. But I was just heating the tongs up there so they don't cool it when I grab it. That's what I was doing on the, on the floor. Here comes the blank. As you can see, it's red hot. And it will make quite a good noise when it goes in the water. Uh, so what happens there basically is I'm setting the crystal structure of the metal as if it's at that high temperature. By cooling it very quickly, it doesn't have time to sort of readjust. So okay. that's what makes it softer to be able to hammer it without it cracking. So I mean, in the in the Turkish foundries and at Zildjian and Sabian and UFIP everywhere else, you know, that they'll be doing this right before they press the cups and then again before they start the hammering process. So only drying off and cleaning up and uh, then I'll be able to start, start hammering it. How many times do you have to do that? Is that just like a one-time deal? Usually just a one-time deal, yes. With um, that Japanese material I was talking about, mm -hmm. um, they've made that to be essentially hot-stamped and a little bit of hammering on the top afterwards. Okay. Uh, they didn't think I'd be able to hand hammer it without it breaking. Got it. Uh, so I did temper that multiple times, sort of hammered it in maybe three stages, pre-tempering each time. Although when you do that, it doesn't retain its shape. It kind of droops a bit and goes wavy again. But you still get some of the, the cup more or less stays the same. And the sort of the stretching of the profile that you put in stays there, but the shape kind of deforms a bit. So you've always got to kind of uh, recover it, okay. I guess, after after a retempering. Well, then the next step wouldn't that be um, forming the uh, oh, the yeah, cup? Yeah, I'm having the cup. Yeah, that, okay. that would come next. Okay. Okay. So sometimes I stand at my anvil and raise it up, and sometimes I'm sitting down. But today I'm standing up, uh, which is much better for my back. Uh, I've put the symbol anvil on top of the gong anvil to raise it up like that. So I've got a hardened steel top on top of a wooden stump. And I'm basically hammering concentric circles. You can see I'm turning the symbol mm -hmm. while I'm hammering. Uh, sort of building them up, moving in and out, stretching the, the shape from flat into more of a dome. I don't know if you've ever ridden on a, a train for a long time, like looking out the window. And when you stop, it seems like the background's moving backwards, opposite oh, yeah. to where you were, because your your brain has started doing all the motion correction. Yeah. When I'm looking at that 
picked up and turning it and hammering it. When I stop, the, the middle of the room is going the other way. <laughs> That's weird. It's really strange. Well, with that too, I noticed you had a whole bunch of uh, marked out oh, circles uh, concentrically throughout the yeah. symbol. Is that how you form the bow? That's just to, to guide my eye, really, to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm doing it fairly evenly at the same radius. Um, I have, a, you know, a couple on the bow and, and lots of them in the, in the bell. Well, okay. it's interesting. I spent my first years as a cymbalsmith trying to make my bells absolutely perfect, superbly round. Um, and then I've sort of spent the second half then deliberately misshaping them or deforming them a little bit to, to break up the sound, to make it a little, little broader. Okay. I get another video here uh, of you making, uh, hammering the symbol and or the bow of the symbol. Okay. Yeah. So I, I tend to start with, I think, what many symbolsmiths will call the spokes method. So I'm kind of radiating out in straight lines. Um, at the beginning, I start a bit like tuning a drum head, sort of, you know, going opposite and then at 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. to try and keep it more balanced rather than just going around in order like I am now a little later on. This just allows me to put the basic sort of skeleton in of, of a gentle dome. Uh, then I'll move into more like the bell hammering, sort of going round and round in circles rather than going out in spokes. Uh, but this it's just a means of starting out even and balanced. You know, okay. So you don't hammer too much in one spot. That's just amazing. Just all the steps that go into a symbol, and you got one individual doing it versus machinery. Uh, this this last step here is interesting, uh, which actually kind of completes the the form of the symbol by your with your lathing. So it's a little bit longer video, and so we got to play that one because that, that's this is really cool. <laughs> okay, so you can see a lot more hammering on that now than there was earlier. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've done some of this point of view, so <laughs> see what it looks like to lay the symbol. Shavings on the floor there. Well, so that mount behind it, is that a pad you have? Yeah, um, so it's on like a wooden shaped former, uh, but I find that's a little too solid. So so I have yeah, a little little pad that has a little bit of give in it. Okay. So it... it helps with things like sometimes you see that lathe chatter on a symbol where it really looks uh, almost serrated. Mm -hmm. You get that when you get like a, a vibration building up, like a, a resonance. And uh, with, with the pad in there, it, it helps stop that happen. So as you're taking off the little, you know, just a little bit of um, metal, how, mm -hmm. how do you plan that out? Is that just something that comes with experience or, or what do you do? Yeah, it's more or less something that comes with with practice, um, getting a feel for it, obviously the outside edge of the symbol is moving linearly faster than the middle. Um, so even if you lathed perfectly evenly, you would end up with a taper. You'd remove okay. more material from the edge. Um, for a crash symbol, you certainly you'd probably want to exaggerate that and deliberately remove more from the edge anyway. So the bell's thicker and the, the edge of the symbol is thinner. Uh, for some ride symbols you might do that as well. For orchestral crash symbols, you're probably going to try to keep them more or less the same thickness all the way across, uh, just because of the different way they're used and the different sound they want from them. 
Uh, but lathing, as well as controlling thickness and taper, you can also adjust um, the tension a little bit depending on how hard you press and how much lathing you do from the top and how much lathing you do from the bottom, you know, the balance of it. Okay. Uh, then there are more subtle things about the exact finish of the lathing, you know, if it's like little pin lines or it's deep grooves. Um, change the overturns a little bit, the balance of them, and change the, the stick sound a little bit. But it's fairly, you know, small percentages, really. Well, so the top side of that symbol, is that a, a finish that you, you're going to have on the symbol for that one specifically? I think on that one I did keep that finish, yes. Yeah, so that's unlaved on the top. And um, they were a set of blanks that were really kind of almost like a red wine color. I thought, okay. I've got to keep this. is lovely. <laughs> I've got to keep this. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, different than what you usually see. I think I may have just, just pushed it with a piece of wood to kind of smear the surface a little bit and give it that bit of sheen. Okay. Uh, maybe put a bit of oil on it as well. I can't, I can't remember. Um, yeah, I'm always, always changing things up, always trying different things. So. I can't say for sure what I did in that, that video. Um, how long? So it varies anything from two hours to two days, really, um, depending on the size and type of the symbol, whether you're just aiming for a nice symbol or something very specific, you know, trying to match a sound or, or you know, making an orchestral pair where the two of them have to go together very well. And you know, operate over a huge, huge dynamic range, so every little thing needs to be just right. You know, that's I and mean, I guess that's the yeah, two days elapsed time. I mean, active time. Um, there will be periods where you leave the symbol to rest, or periods where it's in the the oven. You know, come back to it after a couple of days, see how it's sounding, hear how it's sounding. Because uh, right after you've hammered it, you know, it's all really tight and gnarly and, and quite dead sounding sometimes. Okay. Uh, but after a few days to a week or two, it really starts to open up and all the high frequencies come out more and you can hear really where it's going. And, you know, maybe it might need a, a little, you know, couple, two or three more hammer marks just to just to just find the little things. What so, causes uh, that to happen? Like, uh, um, what, what's molecularly what's going on inside the, the metals? Crystal grain boundaries are moving. Okay. Uh, I tend to use an analogy of like if you're a, I don't know, a weightlifter or a sport person or whatever, and you, you, you're all stiff, like after you've torn a lot of muscles, um, and you get a massage, and it's like, oh, that's better. Um, it's like time gives the symbol a massage. Okay. Basically, all the crystals are the symbol, and they sort of re-knit. It's, uh, yeah, amazing. It really just sounds like turn all the trouble down when it's freshly made, and then it just slowly opens up, yeah. Depending on how heavily you've worked it, you know, it can come back in half an hour. It's like, okay, great. I know that's going to be fine. Other times it might be a couple of days and you're still, no, it's still got a bit further to go before I can be sure it's got to be okay. But before this, I guess you, you've got to have had enough uh, experience to know roughly how it is going to sound while you're making it to get the shape right and, the, you know, choose the weight, choose the diameter, choose the profile, uh, what the tension is in it. Um, you know, so that because you can't hear immediately what it's doing, you can only okay. hear a, a guide towards what it's doing based on what you know from having made them before. It's kind of interesting. I think Johan used to use the, the phrase 
uh, listening into the future. <laughs> wow, that's kind that's of what cool. have to do. Very poetic. <laughs> so you're talking about crystal grain structure. Have you ever buried your symbols in dirt to, <laughs> to try to draw that out? No, no, I have not done that. Uh, I I do a, a chemical patina to make a symbol look like it's old. Mm -hmm. um, it dries the sound out a teeny tiny amount and brings the stick out a t tiny amount. Um, I don't know if any of those bearing things, if they work. I mean, I think you you have to leave it in the ground for like a couple of years really to do anything. So they're long, you think? Okay. Yeah. So I, I know. I think. Well, who did it first? It might have been one of the Turkish companies, and then I think Sabian did. You know, they buried a whole crate of them, and made a big thing about it. <laughs> I always thought it was a, a joke, but it really does work. Uh, it's amazing how it does modify the sound of that symbol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think probably yeah, like chemical stuff on the surface will, will change things a little bit. Um, maybe temperature swings as well. You know, lots of those over a year or so. But, will do things uh, just not playing it for a year will, will be different from playing it for a year. Um, some people advocate, oh, you've got a new symbol and it's a bit sort of stiff and not quite open enough. Like they say, like put earplugs in and just like do rolls on it with big sticks or big mallets, like half an hour every day for a week kind of thing. Oh, okay. Um, and that, that, that will make a difference too. Uh, so I know you, you, um, will create a symbol for uh, like an orchestra um, per order. So mm -hmm. what's the conversation like when they approach you of saying, hey, we, we want a couple of orchestral symbols. What what do they ask you? How was that discussion like back and forth? Right. Well, this is the perennial problem of putting sound into words um, that makes sense to both, both parties. <laughs> uh, but usually uh, we'll go with a, a starting point, you know, so some symbols I've made before or some symbols they already have um, or symbols they found in a YouTube video um, and then say, okay, like this, but deeper or like this, darker, like this, brighter, um, like these, but as if they were 17s instead of 19s, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, differences relative to a known known thing or, or they'll quote a weight they'll say i want i want them around 2300 grams um oh, you know and that'll give me an idea or they'll say i want them for marla 10 or i want them for um Rachmaninoff's piano thing or you know so you know very different symbols for those things um sadly i don't know that much about that i need to of my classical repertoire knowledge really <laughs> it's all, part, all part of the learning process working with you know orchestral people and getting those bits of feedback and doing bits of research. Um, so how, just a, a general question. How do you think uh, you symbol craftsmen have impacted the symbol industry uh, of some of the larger production companies? Oh, well, I mean, I definitely saw things happening, um, changes towards more, I guess more individual lines and things, things that were a bit more differentiated. Uh, you'd see maybe designs or styles of design that I'd done or other independent guys done cropping up in some of the Turkish companies. Oh, ah, really? Wow. That's a 
you know, that's from Matt Bettis or hey, that well, mine. Uh, you know, so yeah, you see like visual ideas being taken on some sonic ideas as well. Um, on, on the other end of things, the big companies have kind of done almost everything already anyway at some point. And there's only so much reinvention and, and variation you, you can do uh, within the world of symbols, I guess, with, with, before it becomes a very much an effect symbol that is fashionable for six months and then they're on to the next one. So uh, I started out very much trying to do completely new, completely different, what other sounds can you do mm -hmm. kind of thing. That was fascinated me for quite a while. Um, but gradually I was finding it was the more normal things, just like good quality normal things that were the things that were selling more, you know. I still still make the peculiar way out things and the very arty things from time to time. Um, you know, there are still customers that want that. Uh, but a lot more of my work now is, is you know, fairly normal looking and sounding symbols. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's interesting. From, you know, from where where I started. Well, one thing that's interesting to me are, uh, in regards to the economy of material and material availability, uh, material availability right now, um, is is the mm -hmm. in significant increase in metals over the last year, year and a half, especially precious metals and import taxes. Um, how yep. has that impacted you? Have you seen a significant increase in the last couple of years in, in material costs? One of my Turkish suppliers doubled his blank cost um, wow. last year, uh, which was a bit of a shock. Uh, I heard on the grapevine that B8 now is as expensive as B20 as a raw material. Uh, wow. So it's getting difficult to justify its use as a budget line um, in the big companies. Uh, yeah, prices have gone up. Uh, shipping times have gone up. Uh, duties, I've not had much of a problem with, um, unless they just factored into the prices already. Um, okay. I know, like, sending symbols, most places that there aren't duties on symbols per se, um, I'll get charged, like, uh, UK sales tax if I buy a lot of blanks from Turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's twenty percent. It's not not too bad, and that's always been always been the case. Okay. Yeah. Overall, materials price absolutely shot up. Yeah, huge. Well, also, material availability is becoming a problem too, and also some elements that go within the materials. Have you heard anything about that in relationship to uh, symbol manufacturing and symbol material availability? Um, availability. <laughs> I can't say the word. Sorry. <laughs> not not so much. I mean, I think. Other, other than the price, I know like copper is one of the most recycled materials we have. Everything, all the copper that came out of the ground ever, 95% of it is still being used. You know, oh, wow. it just gets reused and reused and reused. Um, it's not as energetically efficient as reusing aluminium, aluminium. Um, but yeah, copper is it's used all the time, reused. Um, I don't know if well, I guess we must be running out of it. There's only so much in the ground left, and we use more and more of it. And mm -hmm. Perhaps the issue is more with, with tin. Um, I don't know. I know there are still mines in, in Cornwall here in the UK where they have tin, but it's 
remains uh, not economically worth it to extract it right now, but it may become so in the future. The prices what? keep going up. So is it just that it costs too much just to ore out and they can't get the price for it? Because I thought tin was in high demand for multiple different types of metals. Is that not the case? I'm I'm not. To be honest, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know there are more issues with uh, like heavy metals and, and rare earth metals. Okay. Um, the availability of them. I think certainly with all, all, all the projections for what we'll need for, like you know, decarbonizing mm. industry and all that kind of thing, uh, and you know, using more solar panels, using more um, wind turbines and stuff. Um, there are going to be problems extracting those materials, having enough okay. of it um, okay. to do that. But I, I haven't seen anything just with basic copper, tin, um, silver, zinc, those kind of things. Um, Maybe I'm unaware. Maybe I'm <laughs> going to well, suddenly find out and go, oh, my God. The <laughs> reason why I ask all that specifically is is I've seen with different you know industries, and specifically with mine, I work in engineering, and the availability of specific materials, elements, the taxes for precious metals, at least in the U.S., has significantly gone up. And the cost of aluminum in the last, I'll say, 24 months has gone, has almost gone up seven times in cost here. So wow. Was, yeah, it's ridiculous. And uh, I also heard a little bit, I heard that uh, different elements and different met, you know, metals were in short supply. And I didn't know if that was long-term, short-term, or if not. So I'm just trying to hammer I that down to just sort of interest for myself. It could still be... Um the sort of you know ongoing ramifications of like the pandemic and that big blockage in the Suez Canal that happened a year or two ago. <laughs> I forgot um, yeah. that just like messed up everything because yeah. the whole world runs on just in time now. There are no yeah. big warehouses for stuff all along the path anymore. So when you get a blockage in a system like that, it takes a long time for everything to get back to normal again. Uh, so it may still be things to do with that and i know a lot of those precious metals and um rare earths and things come from china and places like that which are less politically inclined to be helpful at them so. <laughs> i want to move on a little bit quickly here you make so many different types of instruments i want to have people aware of all that you do because we're, we're getting on a little bit and i, I don't want to take up much of your time and um i just want to have people learn about so much of what you do and gongs are something that i love and mm -hmm. you, you are making them from scratch. They're just amazing instruments. Uh, I'm going to play up your video here. Again, if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about um, the process of making a gong. So this was commissioned by like a, a almost a TV channel here in the UK. And they wanted kind of a, a Eastern philosophy kind of looking logo. Mm -hmm. Putting on a gong that they could have in their, their studio. So that end up being like a 20, 28 inch gong or 30? Um, I think it's a 32. 32, maybe. okay. And then what, what, what alloy is that? So that is nickel silver, um, okay. which is an alloy of copper, zinc, and nickel. Uh, so I get it as a flat disc from Germany. Um, and here I'm blowtorching the edge to soften that material up. Uh, just doing a little bit of straightening so everything's warped. And then the joy of 
very many heavy hammer blows <laughs> to <laughs> bend that collar around. Uh, there's there's a hollow in the wooden stump there that I'm hammering into, and you can see the backrest kind of comes up, so I don't need someone to hold it for me. I can do it by myself. Just change the angle as as I go. You basically form a big beer bottle cap, and then try <laughs> try to remove the wrinkles from it. Okay. Uh, in a way, you're also you're kind of making a metal drum. That's kind of acting as the shell of the drum, the, the thing against which you pull the tension in the face. Which is kind of what I'm doing here. I'm putting tension in that face, also getting it flat rather than dished inwards. Uh, on a lot of my gongs, I put like relief hammering in the center or somewhere. This this one is just plain, more or less, besides this hammering for sound and structure. Uh, the decoration on this is done. We'll see in a minute with engraving. Okay. I'm going to do a little sort of stress relief heating here. This is something you can do with nickel, silver, and B8. Um, you can't do it with B20. So this is accelerating the back massage, basically, rather than having to wait. Okay. With a little heat to coax it along. You know, I always thought that sh the shininess came from polishing. That comes actually from the heating. Oh, no, it was shiny before I started, but you, you're just seeing it in the reflection there. Okay. I think it's bringing it out. So now I'm actually going to clean off some of the oxide that was put on by the, the flame there uh, to give me a nice reactive surface to darken with a chemical. Let's try to get a nice, relatively even black background. And uh, yeah, transferring marks on and doing a lot of engraving. <laughs> trying not to put fingerprints on it while I'm doing it as well. Do you coat your instruments after you're done? Some of them, yeah. This this one got a lacquer okay. to preserve it. The symbols I tend not to, um, but some of the gongs I do, and some of the things with, you know, more decorative finishes like this, I'll put some kind of lacquer or sealant on. Just to stop them, you know, oxidizing or getting finger, really bad fingerprinting and stuff. Wow, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. So it's got the text and then like an Eclipse logo that I'd done on a previous gun that they liked and they wanted to include. Yeah, so a few days of work there. That must give you incredible satisfaction uh, when you're done with a gong. I mean, it, it's such a different instrument than a cymbal, and it, it just everybody loves gongs. <laughs> I love <laughs> gongs. Um, so, do you tune the gong? You know, like like some like Peister tunes gongs. Other cymbal makers and gong makers, um, they don't necessarily tune them, but they they will design in deep or high-end tones i think is that can you talk a little bit about that yeah um i guess most of the gongs like that that i make um they don't have a specific tuning um unlike you know the peisty ones there like this precise hertz and you know this this a sharp or whatever for, for uh, you know specific purposes mm -hmm. um, i do make some tuned gongs but they're more like the the thai ones that are very sort of focused and pure sounding bell like almost mm -hmm. 
Um, but for those sort of larger, big, whooshy, in orchestral terms, they're known as tam-tams, but colloquially gongs, you know, they're all gongs. Um, I concentrate more on getting the overall tone of the thing working nicely. So it, it's sort of speaking um, in the best way, really, the most responsive responsive way. And, and there's there's a pitch range that works for that, depending on the diameter of the gong and the thickness and sort of how large you make the face. Um, and way higher than that, way lower than that, it just doesn't work. Well. It's not a co- cohesive sound. Mm-hmm. Um, similar with the cymbal, I guess, although with the cymbal, sometimes you deliberately try to split like the stick sound from the wash. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, sometimes you are aiming for uh, two separate sounds in a cymbal almost, um, whereas with, with a gong, you, you really want this sort of very um, together sort of whole sound where, where, where the spectrum is, is fairly linearly filled. Um, you know, so it doesn't have like lots of woof and then nothing and then some fizz on the top. You know, mm-hmm. middle filled as well. Um, on another one where I'd hammered quite a strong relief uh, emblem into it, uh, it was really crazy sounding. Like, oh, no, it's a bit too wacky. And it just took some other little hammer strokes just to sort of bring it in a bit. Um, not so far that it was super clean uniform, but just so the craziness was a bit more tamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's always a judgment, you know, is it finished? Is this how it should be? Should I do some more? Should I make it a bit cleaner? Should I make it a bit gnarlier? Um, so the gong you're referring to in, in the video we watched earlier, there was a gong in the background that looked like a medical insignia. On the, that's on the, the one. Front. Okay. That's that's one. One. Yeah. Wow. That is just unbelievable how you could pound that in there. And and uh, I, I just it's interesting to me how does that augment the sound of the gong if you hit that specifically? It, any sort of raised surface in the middle is going to give it a little more focus, a little more of a a pitch. Oh, you okay. Know, sort of underneath that that wash. Um, but an irregular shape is is also going to give it lots of funky tones and things. Um, actually, the best place for striking that one with that insignia on is is more or less right in the middle <laughs> like okay. just a little bit below normally with a tam tam like that you'd be striking a couple of inches below the middle mm-hmm. um, but that one works more or less dead in the center i guess because of that that raised raised element all right well i want to play one more video um and this is a bjork video i talked about that i can't pronounce pronounce the rest of it <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering Gamalest. Gamalest. And uh I want this will be the last video, but I, I, I just I find this so fascinating. All these different instruments that you uh do that are that are all specifically tuned in. Uh just wondering if you could walk us through some of some of this video as well. Okay, sure. So start stuff in my workshop in Bath. Um making all these little tone bars, you know, like Glockenspiel bars, basically from bronze. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later I should go out to Iceland to meet up with the pipe organ maker who was building like the cabinet and the mechanism for it. Um, this was on such a tight schedule. You probably saw a friend of mine helping out drilling holes in the bars just then. Um, he's actually the cameraman for this whole thing as well. Okay. Uh, so here we are in Iceland with Björgvin, the uh, pipe organ maker. So he's taken like all the mechanism from an old Schiedmeier, uh, German Celeste. 
He's put it in a new cabinet and we've swapped out the steel bars for these bronze ones that I've made. And we've swapped out the felted hammers for like hard boxwood hammers. Okay. To make it sound more like this Indonesian gamelan style of music. Uh, I had to retune and remake about an octave and a half of the bars in Iceland because once we got them on the instrument, they weren't sounding right. Um, there are resonators underneath, you know, a bit like on a marimba or a xylophone. And they're really changing some of the the, the, the timbre of the bars. Uh, so somewhere, I think it was like around the middle octave, it just didn't seem to be flowing. You know, the sound wasn't progressing naturally. It felt like there was a step in it. Well, there was. I'd made them in two different thicknesses, three millimeter and two millimeter thick. Okay. Uh, I essentially moved where that crossover point was a bit further up the keyboard to make it sound more homogenous. There's Bjergen testing it out. So it has a manual keyboard and it has some um, electromagnetic actuators as well so you can play it over a MIDI cable. Oh, you can wow. play it with another keyboard or you can play it with the computer. Uh, <laughs> very much enjoyed that. That is just unbelievable, the sheer number of instruments that you, you do, including hammers. I mean, that's usually a, a really specified instrument craftsman just for that alone. So how broad are you with your interests? And is are you more driven by problem solving or recreating an instrument? You've hit the nail on the head there, problem solving. I love challenges, solving problems, improving something. Um, having said that, as you also said, um, recreating things. I, I, I've ended up with a fair amount of work in the past few years recreating things, like 100, 200-year-old triangles that an orchestra has one of that they're frightened that it'll get lost, broken, or it'll play out. And so they kind of want a fairly accurate replica of it that they can use for most of the gigs, and then they use that one on the Christmas concert or whatever. Wait, which um, they have back students, Christian students, they all want that sound, so they, they're buying copies of this triangle. Um, same with some cymbals, especially spitzakinos. Um, uh, sadly, a lot of those have a habit of breaking, like shattering like glass um, after a couple of years of playing. Uh, but the sound was so exquisite, you know. Um, people, you know, want it recreating or as, as best can be done. So sometimes I'll be making a, a mate for an existing, you know, surviving symbol. The one broke, I make a replacement that fits with it or sometimes recreating old pairs. Okay. Uh, done the same with a couple of jazz ride symbols. Um, I guess that in itself is a problem-solving uh exercise mm -hmm. uh, that's you know why i sought out that japanese alloy to get the brighter sound to try to get the spitzakino uh shimmer without the symbol having this brittle issue um so i eventually figured out what he'd been doing and with heat treatment uh and it's like it, it's inevitable this symbol is going to break mm -hmm. you know it sounds fantastic for a while <laughs> but it's it's going to break um because again crystalline structure stuff like um, they were cracking not between the crystal grain boundaries, but straight through the crystal grains. So I don't know if you if you see a cracked symbol. Usually, the cracks look like lightning, mm -hmm. you know, zigzag, spitty yeah. things. Um, 
The space echidna is cracked like porcelain. It's like gentle arcs. Oh, like, wow. It's like, wow. <laughs> um, so it's like, okay, so I can't do what he was doing to try to get the sound because then we'll have the same problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I noticed about them was that the, the high frequencies sustain a lot longer than if you just take an ordinary Turkish blank and make a symbol from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly it was in the shape, but partly it was, it was beyond what you could just do with shape and tension and weights and lathe and everything else. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I'd learned about these, uh, these Japanese alloys. Um, they had the extra tin, and then they got tiny bits of zirconium and titanium, I think, in there, just like 0.1%. That just makes it a much harder structure. Mm-hmm. gives you that, that brightness. Um, but it comes with working problems. You can't hand hammer it very easily because it does get, it does get hard um, quite quickly. Uh, so then, you know, I was doing the, the multiple, multiple tempering. I just have to back you up one step, though. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't almost stop laughing about this one. You know, the proverbial triangle, you know what I mean? <laughs> so what makes a special good triangle versus, you know, somebody standing up and at the end just going, ting? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, it is funny, isn't it? Because it, it's always been like the school band joke instrument. You know, the kid who has no talent at all still <laughs> has to be part of it. So they give him the triangle to play and he or she. Uh, and they play it at the wrong time, and it sounds terrible. And you know, it is it is the joke instrument, isn't it? Um, but then you'll get these orchestral players that they have twenty five different triangles, okay. and they're all <laughs> they've all got this special something about them. And they'll use this one for this piece, and they use that one for that piece. And maybe if they're touring and they're in a different hall, actually they'll switch the triangle because the hall sounds different, and that one's not quite working. Um, one percussionist, American guy, but he plays in a Norwegian orchestra, mm. said to me, well, it's like, it's the fairy dust on the top of the orchestra. You're the sound that makes the other people sound great. You know, like the harps do this run or the flute does a trill and there's this little extra sparkle right on the top triangle that makes them look fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people will pay two, $300 for a really good triangle. Whereas... That one kid in school band was playing was like a piece of bent aluminum for five dollars or something. <laughs> but it, it's ridiculous. It's just a bent piece of metal. But the right metal bent the right way, maybe with some hammering on it, with some heat treatment to it. It's yeah, it's quite fascinating. Um, really how obsessed I've become with not really that much interest in them <laughs> originally with triangles. Well, it, it's a and special artist making different variations on them say what if i try this what if i try that what if i do this to the bar before i bend it um you know just incrementally pushing in different directions i guess you know can we make a really dark triangle a really sparkly triangle or really articulate triangle one of the things you're generally trying to avoid in an orchestral triangle is is a strong notion of what the pitch is you know you want it to have lots going on so that it, it will sound fine in g major or c minor or whatever key the orchestra's in it won't clash it won't sound like it's super in tune um so you're trying to get a broad sound from something that by the physics of it really wants to have a pitch Mm -hmm. Uh, so you're always trying to subvert that one way or another i see it's amazing any professional who is into any instrument there is such a level of uh intensity and understanding that um people sometimes will just simply play off as a joke but what i was just 
and I'll leave this alone now, but what I'm envisioning is like a Saturday Night Live episode where a guy has a box full of triangles, you know, <laughs> you know that's his whole lifestyle. No. Uh, anyways, um, no, that's fantastic. I really appreciate that because it's just uh, it's a good understanding of, of all the different types of instrumentation and um, uh, just all the amazing art and skill and craftsmanship you put into your instruments. Um, I'm really excited what's coming up uh, with the... Uh, Chicago Drum Show, you're going to be giving a presentation, I think, on a Saturday. And on Sunday, you're going to be part of a panel. What can yeah, you expect yeah, from the presentation? Eight, eight of us, I think, are all going to be giving an individual presentation and then in this, this panel session. And I think at least more than half of us will have booths as well, so you'll be able to check out a load of, a load of our instruments. <coughs> so uh, what will your presentation be? Will you be crafting a symbol or talking about symbols, do you think? I haven't decided yet. Okay. It's going to be. Um, it might be worth conferring with the other guys, actually, to try so we each present something different in a way, um, or a different different aspect of, of symbol making. You know, you, you don't want us all saying, "Oh, this is how I make a symbol." You know, <laughs> or, this is what I think a symbol should be. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure because I, I asked Rob, I asked Rob Cook, like, "Well, you know, what kind of thing do you want? Do you want it to be about this or about that?" And he just said, well, you know, whatever you want it to be about or however best you want to present your business or the history of something or whatever. So, yeah, it's real broad, you know, brief. Um, and, yeah, I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, the last time I gave a presentation was, was in Germany, um, which was all about, I guess, uh, being an independent craftsperson or an independent business um, Figuring out that you don't have to be a big factory to do these things, but certainly not these days with the internet communication, just being able to email someone in Turkey or China or wherever and getting some materials and you can learn how to do it and mm -hmm. uh, learn how to market yourself or all, all that. It was, I guess, from from that angle, that talk. Um, so maybe it'll be like that. Maybe it'll be something else. Um, I don't know. I'm, I will spend some time planning it and come up with that. Something worth listening to, I hope. Well, you've been in, uh, completely engaging. I've enjoyed every moment that I've had with you today, and I'm sure every you know, person watching Thank it right you. now uh, will too. And I know it'll be exciting what, what you do. I just want to encourage everyone to go to the Chicago Drum Show to see him to uh, see you present, see the panel, and learn more about uh, handcrafted symbols, which is a, just a fascinating and growing uh, market out there today. So. Mm. Yeah, it's it's like it's just like uh, mushrooming, I guess. There's so many more people doing it now. Uh, you know, doing their own their own little thing, their own takes on the craft. And uh, yeah, there'll be yeah eight eight or nine of us there, I think, um, as well as all the the other great booths with the vintage drum sets, custom drum sets, you know, big brand symbols, the whole the whole whole deal. It's a great show. So Matt, thank you so much uh, again for your time. This has been fantastic, and. Uh... Um, um, do you have anything you want people to know uh, about you, how to get in contact with you, uh, to purchase uh, instruments from you? All right, yeah. Um, some point between now and Chicago, I'm going to update my website because it's about 10 years old and <laughs> a bit clunky. Um, but it is mattnolancustom.com. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram on that same handle, Matt Nolan Custom, M-A-T-T-N-O-L-A-N-C-U-S-T-O-M, Matt Nolan Custom. Uh, that's about it, I guess. Um, 
people tend to buy directly from me. Um, Steve Weiss music, Karima triangles in the States uh, and a couple of other instruments. Uh, but <clears throat> generally people are ordering very specific, you know, I want a symbol like this, symbol like that. So I don't really do symbols through stores um, at the moment. It doesn't make much sense. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. This has been a production of the Drumming News Network. All rights reserved. All media is owned by the respective parties. This episode cannot be distributed or copied in any form. Please visit drummingnewsnetwork.com daily to keep up on all the latest drumming news. Copyright 2023.